0: Today is Friday, March 24th, 2023. This is Quick Start from CBN News. I'm Dan Andros. An 85-year-old Christian college may be shutting down. We'll have that top story and more on today's podcast. We're bringing news from a Christian perspective. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be alerted when a new episode drops, which is each weekday morning at 7 a.m. Give us a rating, share it with a friend. You also can email us, quickstartpodcast at cbn.org. We'd love to hear from you. Always great to hear from you. Those of you who are going through the news of the cray with us each and every single day, joining me to get through it today, Billy Hallowell. What's up, Billy? Well, I'm I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here. There's a lot going on as always, and we are just gonna hop right to it. But what are you what story are you gonna be diving into on the podcast today?
1: Yeah, I'm going to be looking at this former cop who reportedly lost his job with the San Francisco Police Department Mm -hmm. over refusing the COVID vaccine. It's amazing
0: amazing how that's sort of turning around now that we've had some space and distance past the early days of the pandemic. Some of these um, rules and regulations now getting more scrutiny. Also on the main thing, we're going to take a closer look at this farm bill, something that's normally kind of bipartisan, but there could be more of a partisan fight this time around, why it's important, everything you need to know about it. John Stolness has that on today's main thing. But first, we're going to get through the news here in 90 seconds. Devastated but not defeated. That was a pastor's response after a raging eight-alarm fire tore through his church in Burlington County, New Jersey. Earlier this week, Pastor Russ Hodgins of Fountain Life Center was in shock after his church was engulfed in flames that could be seen for miles. That led to 40 crews from several fire companies to respond to the scene. Thankfully, no injuries were reported. Over 200 firefighters were there. Officials are now investigating the cause of the fire. But despite the disaster, the church plans to hold worship services this Sunday. The King's College in Manhattan, a non denominational Christian college, is expected to announce its closure after a Canadian education investment company, Prima Corp Ventures, failed to deliver on promises to boost declining enrollment, according to staff and faculty. The school, which has got only a 1,000 students in it, has been compared to Hillsdale. They launched a fundraising campaign trying to get $2.6 million last month. They raised less than half a million dollars. And anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. rose by 36% in 2022, reaching a record high, according to an annual audit by the Anti-Defamation League. Those are just some of today's top headlines. You can check out those stories and more over at cbnnews.com. Billy, I feel like this is a story that's it has been reported on. If you Google it, you will see reports on it, but you just don't see it have the sort of breathless urgency that other topics that are similar but aimed at different groups get in the media. When it comes to anti-Semitism, it's clearly going up. I mean, the numbers, when you look at the bar charts and the bar graphs, it's skyrocketing. And yeah. you just don't you just don't get the sense from the media at large that there is an overwhelming amount of concern for it.
1: Well, yeah, and I think, you know, trying to get to the root of the why, right? I think that's the question. And from a worldly perspective, understanding the why might look very different than a spiritual perspective, but it's something we have to look at and understand. You know, I I was just coming off of an interview talking with somebody about this uh, the other day. And it's, I mean, this is a huge issue. It never seems to go away. And we look at the history of what the Jewish people have gone through, it's been one thing after another, and you would think, you know, technically, again through a worldly lens, that if you were to look at the year twenty twenty three, that we'd be past this. This wouldn't yeah. be happening, but yet here we are watching it unfold.
0: Yeah, it's very bizarre, and it's it's hard to know exactly what to make of it in America, because you see, I mean, these random attacks. I mean, I've seen several of these where you see the rabbis, the uh, Orthodox Jews that walk in the street, and it's very plain that they're Jewish. And you'll see these just random, maybe they're not random, but seemingly someone targeted at random and they just attack them, those blindsided hits and knocking people out. It's just, it's really disturbing stuff. And of course, we've had the major incidents like a shooting at synagogue, things of that nature. So certainly something we need to be praying about here as Christians in America.
1: Absolutely. And it's heartbreaking, right? No matter what group of
0: people it right. is, no matter
1: who it is, nobody should, should have to fear in that way. But I think, you know, spiritually trying to understand, well, what in the world is happening? Why is this group of people always being targeted, right? Endlessly mm-hmm. throughout, throughout the history of man, not just, not just today. But, you know, I think in, in this country, you know, we can't have any tolerance for these sorts of things. We've got to get to the bottom of it and, and figure it out. And I think a lot of that, goes back to what we teach our kids, right? The value yeah. of, of life and all of that. I mean it's right. it's crazy.
0: Yes. If you're targeting I like what you said. If you're targeting any group for any reason and really violence almost for any reason at all, um, you're an idiot. And right. you shouldn't be doing <laughs> that. Right. I mean like I yeah. you, you hate to be blunt, but I mean it's it, it feels like like you were alluding to it shouldn't have to be said here in twenty twenty three, but apparently it does because there's still so many senseless attacks going on so much senseless violence and so when you see a specific group getting targeted and the rise is extremely high it's concerning and so we'll continue to report on that over at cbnnews.com we're going to head into our next story now and a former cop who reportedly lost his job with the san francisco police department for refusing to get the covid19 vaccine He's speaking out and now doubling down on this decision. So, Billy, what's the story here?
1: Yeah, you know, I had a chance to sit down with Joel Alworth and he's a third generation cop. He served for 14 years on both the San Francisco and the Oakland police departments. And, you know, we talked about a lot of things, his passion for the job, his reasons for declining the COVID vaccine. I mean, he talked a lot about police work and how it's the most noble profession, one of them out there if it's done correctly. Uh, But really, he found himself in the crosshairs of this COVID-19 mandate debate and found himself needing to make a choice between keeping his job, staying where he was um, and getting the vaccine or not getting the vaccine and losing his job. And so, uh, you know, the, the police department, of course, they're not going to comment on personnel matters, but from what we've seen in other stories and other outlets, they've essentially confirmed that he was separated from the department in 2022, uh, but they've not obviously confirmed what he is claiming. But his claim is that he didn't get the shot and that he was and he was let go as a result of that.
0: So what happened to him when COVID first hit?
1: Yeah, this is what I found so interesting about the story, and I think now that we've had some space to kind of look at what went on, he was working for the police academy at the time, so he was off of patrol. It was really a coveted job, you know, in the academy. COVID hits, and of course, they're not going to let you congregate in the academy, so they shut down the academy, and they send him out. Now, where do they send him? They send him to go and deal with the homeless population, because COVID was such a concern, they didn't want homeless people congregating, so he's gone from this coveted job, which he said was fine, you know, leaving the police academy. He's been assigned to go and work with the homeless. But what I found so interesting about that is you're sending people out into what you presume is a dangerous situation, right? Because you're presuming that COVID is spreading among these people. You're sending the cops out to disperse them and deal with that. And so he went and did that, and he said he worked for another year and a half, more than a year and a half, um, after COVID started um, in doing these things. So they're sending him out to the front lines as an essential worker uh, to to disperse people. So that was interesting to me in light of the fact that, okay, suddenly there's a vaccine, and now you're going to start letting these people go who were your first responders, the people on the front lines, dealing with all this, right? You didn't have any problem putting him out there to do that. But now he's, you know, purportedly been been let go over not getting the shot. Suddenly,
0: hmm. very yeah, very odd indeed. I mean, it, it's overall it is a strange uh, kind of episode story here. What what do you think is the most strange thing about it? Yeah, I
1: mean, I think I think that part of it is is weird, right? That you would say, okay, we're going to have people go and do this, but yeah, you know, the bigger piece is that he was actually given, according to his account he was given a religious exemption. And what I found so intriguing about this is that he claims he was given the religious exemption. Um, Also, 150 others were given that. It was approved. And then he said suddenly, about a month later, everything changed. Suddenly, they were asking for a secondary review. So they'd already allegedly given this exemption. Now they want to to do a review of it. And they pulled it back. And, And so that's when he found himself he said, "Look, I was given a month to essentially get the vaccine or be fired. That was mm. the choice. So it went from here's your exemption. Now I think having the conversation about a religious exemption is fine. Go and have that, you know, conversation. But the point is, if it was granted and then taken back, that's that's kind of strange. Yeah. Um, and he said a lot of people, you know, they buckled under the pressure because they didn't want to lose their job. Yeah. They had families, yeah. and
0: you know, they got the shot. He yeah. did not. I mean, hopefully, if we've learned anything through this COVID pandemic." It's that we should not be heavy-handed with making people get it. Clearly, we didn't know everything that the vaccine would do and what it wouldn't do. And so to force people to get this vaccine, then when we now know later on that, no, it doesn't actually stop the spread. These were all the slogans that they came up with at the time. To, to be heavy-handed just doesn't seem like the right thing to do in a freedom-valuing country. Right. I let people make the best decision for themselves and do not try to try to fear them or, you know, lecture them or, you know, kind of beat them up about it and and sort of ostracize them in, in society to try to get something. It's what the CDC used to do before COVID was make the recommendations. You did not see mandates on these things, but then somehow we transitioned into the CDC being whatever they said you had to do it you know don't go to your parents house at over thanksgiving and people are looking to the cdc for when they should go out and not i mean it's, it's insanity
1: well yeah and i think and i think that's the part of this that is so troubling right is that it, look you could have a separate conversation if the delta variant continued and people were dying at an insane rate in the beginning and you had direct evidence to prove that the vaccine would prevent you from spreading it right i'm Mm -hmm. not saying it would be a good thing but you can have a different conversation but the fact that that wasn't something and it seems like there's some evidence that maybe even perhaps they might have known that that it wasn't doing all the things they were saying it was going to do that's where this gets very troubling when it comes to the government Mm -hmm. and so i just you know he he said one thing that really stuck out to me he's like He was remembering what was going through his mind at the time. And he's like, I'm about to give up a $200,000 a year job, right? And do what? I'm going to lose it all. I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose. And so he just, he talked about praying and then thinking and realizing, you know, what? at the end of the day, I might lose my house. In fact, they've moved out of California um, since this. I might might lose certain things, but I'm not going to lose my family. I'm not going to lose my health or my soul or the things that matter. And so he really was resolute about not giving in and, and he didn't give in.
0: Yeah. Well, good for him. And it's people like that that are going to ultimately, as we've talked about on this podcast, probably help us preserve our freedom in the long run because too many people, it seems, are quick to hand it over the moment there's a little bit of fear that creeps in about the unknown in things like a pandemic. Appreciate you bringing that story, Billy. We're going to move on now to the main thing and the farm bill. Uh, there's just a lot of talk about it this time around. Normally, it's one of those bills that sort of maybe there's a little bit of haggling, but it kind of gets bipartisan support. Well, this time around, Democrats are thinking they're going to be in for a fight. Why is that and why does it matter? Well, CBN's John Stolnes caught up with The Hill correspondent, Saul Elbine about his article laying out the five big fights coming over this 1.4 trillion, yes, trillion with a T, farm bill.
2: And that's today's main thing. Well, so one of the things that the American people care most about is putting food on the table, feeding their kids, feeding themselves, feeding their, their loved ones. And obviously, it's been a big topic of conversation over the last year as food prices have gone up. But, you know, food prices have always been an important issue for the American people. But um, when, when we talk about how the food gets to our tables, we don't really want to look at how the sausage is made for us to get the sausage. And so I thought one of the things that you wrote for, uh, the, the thing that you wrote about in, in The Hill this week, which I found really interesting was the negotiations surrounding the farm bill. And it is such a wide ranging, multifaceted piece of legislation with so many people involved and so many different interest groups involved. Uh, it, it's hard to believe that something like this can ever actually get agreed upon and and worked out. It's a $1.4 trillion bill the big question, I think, to start off with is how do the negotiations that are going, to take, get, are going to be taking place over the next few weeks what's old and what's ultimately decided by Congress, how is that all going to affect the average American listening right now?
3: The biggest part of the package, which is about three quarters to 80 percent of it, is nutrition programs, and most of that is for SNAP funding, or as most people think of it, food so just right off the jump, we're going to have a fight over how much money goes into food stamps. So a lot of Americans who currently struggle to put food on the table may see that get a little bit easier, a little bit harder. But beyond that, there are just so many farm programs that rely on the Farm Bill for funding, um, from huge entitlements to small ones. And one of the reasons why it's so hard to generalize is that the Farm Bill is sort of a catch-all. It's, there's all sorts of agricultural programs that have permanent funding either in the budget or in other programs of their own, the Farm Bill has sort of become a catch-all for everything else that doesn't entirely fit anywhere else. So let me give you one example of one very specific fight that's going to happen in the Farm Bill that I think is a somewhat more manageable thing that will let us kind of see the uh, parameters that we're working with. Last year, the Democrats passed $20 billion in climate stimulus funding, specifically aimed at agriculture. The idea being that Agriculture is on track to become 30% of American emissions. It contributes a huge amount of warming to the atmosphere. And that's an issue because agriculture is also incredibly vulnerable to climate change. Now, this is the sort of thing that farmers, you know, if you would have talked to them out about it out on the fields like a few years ago, they'd have been grumbling, oh, I'm not sure this is really happening. That doesn't really happen anymore. People may differ as to what they think caused it or what should be done about it, but there is no doubt that American agriculture has been in a state of semi-permanent crisis for at least the last few years. Even given that it's always been hard to be a farmer, it's a lot harder now. In addition to the rising cost of all sorts of inputs from fertilizer to fuel to you know other crop necessities, there's also just way more flash drought, flash floods, weird weather, so this 20 billion dollars at least as originally intended is supposed to go to cutting that carbon footprint and also making agriculture more resilient. Now you may notice those two things are potentially at odds. Mm. You know there are plenty of things that might help farming adapt to climate change but not you know cut its contribution to it. And there's plenty of conservation me- methods that you might want to take that are perfectly good on their own on their own terms but don't really have much of an effect on carbon emissions and therefore on climate. And then also, there's plenty of things that are arguably conservation-based, but that other people might say are a waste of money. And I think one of the classic examples here, you know, one of the really, really contentious ones, is that about 10% of federal conservation money right now, under, under one of the major programs, goes specifically to manure management systems for, for big factory farms. Now, if you have a factory farm, you've got to manage your manure. And I think there's a pretty reasonable case to, make, to be made for why this is a valuable conservation funding, even as there's also a pretty reasonable case to be made for that this maybe isn't the best way for us to be orienting our broader food system if we're having to sort of control these giant lakes of, of, of animal feces. But none of those answers are really easy or inherently obvious. And when it comes to what's to be done with this specific $20 billion, all of those questions are going to be on the table, in addition to all of these questions about whether, perhaps, it should be used someplace else. $1.4 trillion is an awful lot of money. And looming over this entire thing is this looming showdown between Republicans and Democrats over how we're going to fund the federal government and whether the deficit can or can't increase. So that's hanging over the Farm Bill, too. And to come up with that $1.4 trillion, there are a lot of people in the House, specifically the Freedom Caucus, who are going to push to find ways to cut that number down. So one thing they may do is they may look to things like this $20 billion, which to be fair, doesn't do you very much good under the you know against a $1.4 trillion bill, but it's the sort of thing people are looking at. Right. And they may say, look, crop insurance programs aren't really meeting the needs of all of these farmers who are dealing with unprecedented weather. Maybe we should raid the climate kitty a little bit. Maybe that money should go someplace else. Obviously, a lot of other groups, ranging from groups that you might think of as environmentalists groups that you emphatically might not, but who feel like they have a decent claim on the money, are going to argue that it should be focused exactly where it was intended to be. And then they are going to argue about really where it was intended to be. So the way that I like to think about the farm bill is that it's sort of like a giant Thanksgiving dinner with a huge family with a long history that doesn't really like each other very much. Nonetheless, they have to work together to get along. And at the end of the day, as much as they might not like each other, they all want the farm bill to pass and they may like the people outside the house even less. So, you know, as as one of the uh, lobbyists working on this told me, everyone here remembers everything that everyone else did to them. But at the same time, we're all united in the desire to get this thing to pass. So one reason why the farm bill is such a weird thing to try and pull any sort of coherent narrative line out of is that. The farm bill is extraordinarily large. It's extraordinarily diverse. Everybody who comes into it has their own set of very specific issues that pretty much only they care about. And they're all in a big room together trying to hammer it into something that will pass. And what you get then out of that is a giant, shambling, messy mass Mm. that doesn't easily lend itself to... uh, describing in an interview that's the farm bill welcome to yeah. the farm bill
2: yeah it, it is and it just reading your story about the the five main parts of it for the hill it's it's eye-opening all of the because i mean the one thing you, you you can clearly see is that there's very little compromise on capitol hill anymore but this is one area where it seems to me compromise and negotiation is an absolute must i, I think one of the the other things that you mentioned too is the battle between the the, the big mega farms and and the small farmer. And, you know, I, for those of us who live in cities, but, we, you know, we have farms near us, you drive through farms and you see small farms and, and, and the like, but, you know, you don't g- generally get a chance to see the mega farms, you know, the Tyson's farms are in all the different places around. And so how does the farm bill try to take all of those different interests into account? Is it even possible, is the small market, the small farm guy, is that just continuing to get gobbled up by, by the big farms and the, and the big machinery of the mega farms in, in the U.S.?
3: You know, that's a really important question. And I'm really glad you brought that up because the farm bill is one of the few places where you will see, commonly, you will see very principled progressives and very principled fairly right-wing conservatives on the same bills. I'll give you an example that that gets directly to the big versus small thing. There was a bill last week that would have made it this fairly simple seeming, but pretty controversial step that if you put on your package of beef that it is made in the USA, that it actually had to be raised, born, slaughtered packaged in the United States. Seems pretty straightforward, but this is something that the beef industry has fought really hard against. They've argued that, look, Beef is international business. If we bring bring cattle raised in Mexico and slaughtered in Mexico into the U.S. and repackage it, that's beef made in the U.S. and employed American workers. For a lot of American farmers, beef ranchers, that's ridiculous. They say it costs a little bit more, but customers would pay a little bit more if they knew that it was made in the U.S. And we can put that on our labeling, but that mark is being diluted by all these companies who are essentially misusing it. This is a huge fight, and, it, and it's a huge fight in part because the Biden administration is pouring money into local slaughterhouses. But there's a pretty good argument that those local smaller those local slaughterhouses they may produce better product, they may increase resilience, but they also may have higher costs because they don't have the massive massive economies of scale that your Tyson's, your Smithfields, or JBS's do. So if they can say "made in the USA," maybe they can charge a little bit more.
2: It is so complex. All of these different interests and uh both for for companies and for the american people it's it's a fascin it really is a a a fascinating thing uh to see how this all comes together and certainly everybody not everybody's gonna get what they want not everybody's gonna be happy but that generally is what happens (laughs) when there's a compromise especially uh when you've got members of congress involved folks we've just we just scratched the surface of all of this we're gonna have a link to saul's article from the hill into in the show notes in the podcast so if you want to learn more about it click on that and you can read Saul's excellent reporting on this. And Saul, thank you so much for coming on with me today. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much for having me. This is a delight.
2: All right,
0: John, thanks so much for that report on the farm bill super i mean 1.4 trillion dollars billy it just seems like these bills are getting we're i'm we're way too comfortable with bills that are in the trillions it's uh, there's too many of them now
1: well they're just they're playing monopoly too often and it just none of it seems real so they're just oh yeah a trillion dollars here a trillion dollars
0: there put a hotel on it right and then they're shocked when we have inflation what what inflation's happening i don't understand it's insane. I mean, if you didn't spend ten trillion dollars every week, we'd uh, maybe not be inflating things. So I digress. John, thank you so much for that report. There, really appreciate it. That leaves us with time for one last thing, and I wanted to essentially just uh, not a specific verse, but let's recap just the story from Numbers thirteen. This is when the Israelites are heading over to the Promised Land, and they're a spy. They send spies to scope out the land and check it out. And when they come back, you get this report and they're all afraid. And they're saying, yeah, the land is good, but they're very fortified. They've got Nephilim there. They've got all these mighty men. We have no chance to defeat them. They're all paranoid, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. And they basically quiet the crowd in front of Moses and say, no, the Lord's on our side. We need to go take it. But they but they all keep grumbling uh, about it. And they end up, of course, getting punished for that. But I, I just think when you pull back and you look at Joshua and Caleb, to have the courage of their convictions and their faith in God to deliver them, to stand up against the crowd, probably wasn't the popular thing to say. So uh, I just like that example of being firm in your faith
1: yeah and trusting like when things seem impossible that when you've been called to it it's not Mm going to be impossible because you were called to it i think we a lot of us and we see that we see moses doing it we see the the hebrews really doing this a lot you know we doubt even though we've got something right in front of us sometimes that he's proven he will always come through we still find ourselves you know doing that so i yeah it's such a good reminder of how we are to behave in the midst of our you know flawed humanity
0: absolutely great spot to leave it there For the week on the podcast, as always, appreciate you being here. Don't forget to subscribe, do the rating, all that other good stuff. Leave a comment if you want. But don't forget to get over to CBNNews.com, FaithWire.com. For more news from a Christian perspective, Lord willing, in that creek don't rise, we'll be back here with more on Monday. God bless. See you then.